the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to City of God, a podcast of the Center for Public Theology at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. My name is Dr. Owen Strand, and I'll be your host. Join us each week as we engage the city of man with the biblical wisdom of the city of God. Welcome to City of God. Today on the podcast, Dr. Jason Allen, the president of Midwestern Seminary and Spurgeon College. It's a great delight to have him, and we are talking today about Churchillian leadership. Dr. Allen, welcome to City of God. Hey, I'd like to be with you today, Dr. Strand, and uh, everything about that topic I like. Churchill, leadership, and uh, all that we can cram underneath that heading. We could talk for, I don't know, a week about Winston Churchill, I think, between the two of us. I think we have before, <laughs> if you roll up our conversations over the years. In actual fact, you took me for the very first time in my life to the Churchill Museum in Fulton, Missouri, a few years back mm-hmm. with Matthew Barrett, and uh, we had— it was pretty epic, I'm not going to lie to you. So Yeah, I love taking guests there. Um, I've taken a few guests there over the years, and I've toured it myself with those guests, and then other times also. And uh, we're, we're having on campus, it was going to be this fall, for mm-hmm. our Spurgeon lecture, Steve Lawson, but actually we've had to bump that back a year because of COVID and just limiting our ability to, uh, to gather in person for events like that. But uh, we're actually planning uh, his travel itinerary around a trip to the Spurgeon the Spurgeon, excuse me, the uh, the Churchill Library Museum in Fulton, Missouri. Yes, yes, and Andrew Roberts, the mm-hmm. uh, the biographer, has been in the mix here. So that's right. We we have um, developed a friendship the past couple of years, and look forward to having him on campus actually for an event around Churchill and leadership. And haven't you know buttoned up all that will entail, but uh, he will be here. And uh, again, Dave Valente, that was supposed to be spring of of twenty, May yes. of twenty, but that got got pushed out a year as well. But he'll be there's a part of a broader Kansas City and, and kind of even U.S. tour circuit he'll be on. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, look, you know, he, he captures our imagination, yeah. um, and, and rightly so. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. Winston Churchill is an endlessly fascinating figure. He is not just a sub-industry in terms of the publishing world. He really is basically his own industry, even to the current day, uh, uh, six decades after he died in 1965. People are basically just endlessly fascinated by him, including the two of us. We're going to do two podcasts about him today. The first one, the one that we're actually having right now, it's happening this very instant, is on the uniqueness of Winston Churchill, Gentleman Statesman. That's the tentative title. And there are just a few places I'd like to go with you to frame out Winston Churchill's life. Very quickly for listeners here to City of God, you've heard me talk about Winston Churchill a good number of times before, but he lived from 1874 to 1965. Of course, he's prime minister of Great Britain twice, most notably from 1940 to 45 in World War II, essentially saves Western civilization, no big deal. But you know those basic facts. What I want to do here with Dr. Allen today is talk about who he was as a person. He was a real character, by the way. He was a unique individual. The first thing I want to talk about uh, in, in regards to Winston Churchill is that he was a gentleman. He was a gentleman. Now, this is, this is something that you and I, I know, both are going to, to be in favor of and like. It's a, a model that's largely lost in our time. 
What What do you think of, though, when I say that he's a gentleman? What comes to your mind uh, in that respect? Yeah, first of all, you mentioned the uh, the basic parameters of his life, born in 1874, so the late Victorian era. And coming of age in an era that is easy for us with some, you know, distance to kind of look back on and romanticize in some ways. Obviously, Churchill's era, late 19th century, early 20th century in particular, had had, had clear social issues, clear challenges, both uh, domestically there in Great Britain and then, uh, you know, throughout the empire. Mm-hmm. And but but it was a a heady era for a, a man like Churchill, um, born into a a family, of course, um, a, an heir of uh, the Duke of Marlborough, and uh, his father. And uh, of course, we could do a whole episode on his father and uh, his his triumphs and travails, both. Yes. And so it was a heady era, though, especially when you get into the early 20th century and the empire spanning the globe. Some 25 percent of the world's population, some 25 percent of the world's geography, all falling under the British Empire. And again, whether or not you look on that favorably as far as imperialism and all that entailed, and again, there's another conversation topic. Yes. But, but the consequence of the time, uh, the uniqueness of the era, um, the, the sense of that Churchill had from a very young age that he was walking with destiny and then able to walk with destiny on you know, perhaps the grandest international stage that existed at that time. Yes. But you asked about uh, what it meant for him to be a gentleman. Well, we think about that in different ways. First of all, Churchill enjoyed, you know, humanly speaking, uh, as relates to the mundanities. He enjoyed the finer things in life. Mm-hmm. You know, famously said, uh, "My tastes are simple. I'm easily satisfied with the best." <laughs> and uh, you know, I've toured Chartwell and uh, been uh, in London in some of Churchill's stores and the, the haberdasheries that uh, he visited and that served him. And clearly, everything from the cigars he smoked to the brandy he drank. To the meals he ate, to uh, the travel he enjoyed, to the house he resided in, to the company he kept, uh, to the places he stayed when he did travel, on and on and on it went. Every little context of life, he enjoyed the finer things of life. Uh, what is more, he, he clearly had the, the air of a gentleman. Mm-hmm. Um, how he interacted with people through, through letter, through conversation, uh, how he treated women, Clementine in particular. Mm. Um, he he was a a gentleman in that sense. What what is more, he he was willing to engage in and and did engage in a a, a form of a gentleman gentlemanly exchange in person, in print, on the floor of of parliament. Um, he was willing to mix it up, and so with that, on the one hand, was an element of panache, uh, an element of courage, a flair for the dramatic. But also a, a tender side of, of personal sacrifice, of tearing up in conversation, of inviting people into his life and guests with a never-ending cycle uh, to Chartwell and other places. Uh, he was a gentleman. Mm. He was. He was. And that's part of the fascinating reality of him is when you see pictures of him today, you know, in many of them, he's wearing a top hat. He's got a cane. He looks like a figure from a different era. He truly was. There's there's aspects of that era, of course, that we wouldn't practice today in different ways. But there are many uh, er- aspects of that era that we can look back on and recognize something there was was unique and and good in different ways. And and Churchill fits that. He was a statesman. That's the next thing uh, that comes to mind for me. This is just a conversation about Churchill and his uniqueness. He was a statesman. He was effectively born. On the world stage, as you said just a few minutes ago, uh, he was a st- he 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 was born to lead, and he loved leadership. That stands out to me about him. 
Right. He had a keen sense of history, uh, a keen appreciation for military history. Uh, he saw his father, Lord Randolph, and observed him uh, as he led, as he occupied leading government positions. Uh, you know, and he, he observed that from a, from a very young age, and he, of course, he, he idolized his father, and he romanticized his own heritage, his own family tree. And he was not only prepositioned to occupy uh, leading roles in the UK, he, he was really pre-committed to. Mm-hmm. And so from, from, from childhood, he, he aspired to those positions. And then in God's provident, providence, yes, I would attribute this to God's kind providence, he was positioned as a very young man to actually gain experiences, gain stature, uh, everything from being a prisoner of war. Uh, and being captured in the the, the Boer Wars to, uh, to, uh, to 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 his pen and his, his journalism to just he landed at a very young age on a on a very large platform mm. and in so doing it's still in God's providence he pre pre uh, ordained for Churchill to be positioned throughout the decades to when you know the darkest hour does arrive. In the context of Hitler and World War II, uh, he was not just ready as far as personal resolve, personal conviction, but but ready. As far as a, a national and international reputation, it would be the one man who would speak, indeed had spoken, uh, to the, the terror of Nazism and Hitler. Absolutely. His, his lowest hours, that was nicely said, prepared him for that greatest hour, uh, the 1930s, and being the lone voice, really, against Hitler meant that he then had the cred to lead in 1940. Right. You know, the three-volume biography that, that Manchester wrote, the first two, then, of course, Paul Reed finished with the, uh, the third volume. You know, that volume two is, is titled Alone, mm-hmm. and it is that those wilderness years. He's out of office. He's a backbencher. He is year after year gaining no friends mm-hmm. by not only pointing to the danger of Nazism, but also pointing to the danger of his own colleagues, his own friends in Parliament. They're, they're unremitting unwillingness to acknowledge not only the growing threat abroad, but the, uh, the, the lack of, of a militaristic resolve at home. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the, the collective collusion to stick, for everyone to stick their head in the sand over how ill-prepared his nation truly was to the growing threat abroad. That's exactly right. It's interesting that you were talking a few minutes ago about divine providence, God's sovereignty, and raising up Winston Churchill in this particular moment in history. I agree with everything you said. There are questions when you are a Churchillian, as I am and you are, that you will get in evangelical circles, and there are good questions about how we understand him and why guys like us would so appreciate him if he wasn't necessarily, from what we can tell, an evangelical Christian, for example. How do you think personally? We're not asking for the last word or something on his heart. You and I can't give that. But how do you assess him spiritually in light of God using him, but Churchill not necessarily claiming to be a born-again believer? How do you handle that? Yeah, so here's what we know. Clearly, he was born into a cultural context where you know a, a basic Christian worldview was common, right? Um, certainly an appreciation for the Scriptures, I think we can say Churchill had, and in some sense— some sense, a belief in the Scriptures. Mm-hmm. Now, Churchill famously quipped, and I, I won't get the quote exactly right, but you know, he was better positioned to support the Church from the outside than the inside, you mm-hmm. know, the famous line. Mm-hmm. And so I don't feel like we have to, nor do I romanticize Churchill so much that, like, I try to label him as a card-carrying evangelical, <laughs> you know? Yes. Um, there are theories floating around. I've read of them. Um, some, like Stephen Mansfield, uh, go a little further than, than I do in his biography as far as 
seeing in, 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 in Churchill perhaps more signs of a, of a personal faith in Christ. Uh, of course, there's the, uh, the theories and stories of the encounter that Churchill had with Billy Graham mm-hmm. and that conversation and what yes. came of that. You know, only the Lord knows. But, but clearly, even with that notwithstanding, clearly there is throughout Churchill's life not just an appreciation for, for the King James Bible, not just appreciation for Western civilization and Christian civilization, and yes, he did understand himself as defending that in the context of World War II. Yes. Um, there's also a sense that, that he, and I don't think it's just some strange narcissism, I, I think it is a, a genuine belief that he is indeed walking with destiny, that, that he is indeed fulfilling some divinely ordained role, not just in the context of World War II, but, but before and after World War II. Then, of course, there, there is, you know, most pointedly, that, that journal entry that uh, Churchill made in the hours after the king asked him to form a government. Mm-hmm. Well, he went home and said, you know, uh, I, I feel as though I am, I am walking with destiny, that all of my life has been in preparation for this very hour, mm-hmm. this very trial. Mm-hmm. So, so Churchill understood that. He believed that. And I don't think it was just, some, again, some strange sense of narcissism. Yes. I, I think he, he genuinely perceived his life, and especially in the and the vortex of World War II, he, he saw his life in hindsight building up in the previous experience, everything from the positions he held in the context of, of, of World War I and you know, being First Lord of the Admiralty and so forth. Uh, he saw these experiences building him towards this great climactic moment known as World War II. It's really a cinematic life. It's a life that if you read about and you didn't know that it was backed up by history, you might wonder if it was invented or embellished. It's that dramatic a life. And the circumstances that you've especially highlighted here about his being prepared for this dramatic conflict to lead Western civilization against the the tyranny and the festering evil of the Nazis in particular sounds too fantastic to be true, but it's all true. Right. So I, I don't read a lot of uh, a lot of fiction. I just don't. I'm not opposed to it. It's not like some convictional thing. It's mm-hmm. just I've always found nonfiction more gripping to me. Mm-hmm. And perhaps there is no more gripping nonfiction story than the story of Churchill. Mm-hmm. And again, there's so many good biographies out there, whether it's you know, the Roy Jenkins work, uh, Martin Gilbert work. I, now my favorite one volume biography is by Andrew Roberts. And of course, he's even themed that, a uh, title that, you know, Walking with Destiny, he mm-hmm. picks up on that theme. And uh, yeah, it's just, it's just, it's too compelling. And it's just like every step of the way, it's truly remarkable. The different interests he had, the different relationships he had, the span of decades of public exposure and public service, the um, the the stage he was placed on, um, you know, in reading biographies of, of President Clinton here uh, on our side of the Atlantic, you know, he talks about how he regretted not having some grand conflict that would would occupy his presidency, and not that he was wanting an international war, but acknowledging to to truly be, you know, a Lincoln or a Roosevelt mm-hmm. or a Washington. You know, you, you have to have some, some major conflict to where the future of the nation is in doubt. Mm-hmm. Well, Churchill had that in World War II. He had that in World War I. And he had that to a lesser degree in other issues throughout his, his public life and career. It's really one of the last moments about which basically most people in the West on the intellectual divide either side are going to agree that the Nazis and and uh, and other foes as well that arise during this period really are evil, or at right. least not ideal, if we can say that per postmodern terms. So he really he really does escape in that sense, such that yeah, everybody can recognize that he really does have this cataclysmic effect and impact 
You can't really deny that, right? Yeah, and it, you know, as Christians, as those who think to, seek to think biblically and theologically about about conflict and have a working knowledge of, of just war theory, you know, if you look at the conflicts of the past hundred years, and, and certainly throughout the twentieth century, which was a century of warfare, I mean, th- there was not a conflict more obviously morally right to pursue as Americans than World War II. That's right. And the same clearly for Churchill as well. I mean, the the, the, the maniac in Berlin named Adolf Hitler, um, the slaughter, the genocide he inflicted on the Jews, his his outright aggression uh, towards surrounding countries and then beyond. I mean, it was also very clear. And then and then their attack and uh, the relentless campaigning and the aerial campaign uh, in the Battle of Britain by the Luftwaffe over London, and then and then Churchill standing defiantly month after month after month. Yes, rattling his nation. Not just for their preservation, yes, that was most urgent, but really keeping at bay Hitler and Nazism and keeping them at bay from what they would wreak on the rest of Europe and the rest of the world once London fell. That's that's right. And in, in wrapping up here, that's what we'll close with. He was a man of conscience. Everybody knows about his heroic stand as prime minister. But what is so compelling to me, we've alluded to this several times, is that in the 1930s, particularly as the decade plays out and it becomes clear what the Nazis are really up to in Germany, Churchill is a friend of the Jews. He, he, he is a friend of the Jews at a time in Great Britain when the upper class, for example, the leadership class, the elites, really aren't all that favorable to the Jews. That's not unique in Europe in this right. time. It's more common, actually, in, in many ways. But Churchill was a man of conscience. And the same man that he was in the shadows when he was far from power is the man he was when he was wreathed in power. And that's part of his legacy that stands out to me as we wrap up. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the early 20th century and Churchill's era, uh, what I would refer to as a polite anti-Semitism was basically everywhere, you know. And uh, I'm not referring to the genocidal work of, of Hitler, but more of a polite sort of skeptical view of the Jewish people. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, you know, to some extent, perhaps Churchill uh, uh, reflected that. But, but at the same time, he did see and did call out and seek to act upon the overt aggression committed by Hitler and, um, and Hitler's regime on the Jewish people. That's right. And more broadly, look, he was a man of, of conscience. Yes, at times that led to political transition. He changed party affiliation <laughs> twice. Um, but other times he took positions that were politically unpopular and maintained them. I mean, his relentless commitment to uh, you know, Edward VIII and, mm-hmm. um, during the abdication crisis, that mm-hmm. did not serve Churchill well politically at all. Mm-hmm. But, you know, again, he would take a position, he would stick to it, and he would fight for it. And uh, more often than not, he was right to do so. That's right. Far from a perfect man. Uh, there are various blemishes in his life, failings in his life, from a theological standpoint, sins that you can identify in, in Churchill's past and his existence. And yet, a figure, I believe, uh, with you who is worthy of study and even uh, worthy of emulation in a lot of ways. So a unique figure, a unique gentleman, a unique statesman. Thank you for joining me today. Yeah. If you can't be inspired by Churchill, you're uninspirable. Mm. That's it. That's the final word. Thanks for listening to City of God, a podcast at the Center for Public Theology at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. We're so thankful you stopped by. We encourage you to continue to join the conversation at cpt.mbts.edu, the official website of the center. And we encourage you to follow us on Twitter and Facebook as well. Join us in coming days as we continue the conversation on what it means to be the city of God 
in the city of Man. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. <laughs> 